for another episode of Disability Stage Right. Hey, Miles. Hey, Stephanie. How's it going? Pretty good. Good. So today we're extremely excited to welcome to the podcast Krista Couture, an accomplished singer, songwriter, and uh, writer, uh, recently published a wonderful memoir, which I have not read yet because of how slow things are at getting to people with the Christmas you know, mailing thing that happened this year, but I'm really looking forward to How to Lose Everything. I hope I got that name right. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Krista. Thank you. Hi. So, uh, Krista, you are, I believe, our first singer-songwriter on the podcast. Um, we have mostly been focusing on theater uh, people, um, but we're very excited to have you. And uh, because this is an audio format, could we ask you to start by describing yourself a little bit for the audience? Sure. Uh, well, you've got my name. <laughs> and it's funny, theater people, I might be a failed theater person. I did study musical theater in high school and had dreams of being, you know, a, a one-legged triple threat, but I'm actually a terrible actor. So that just, <laughs> just <laughs> two out of three just does not cut it. Um, I'm uh, white passing, though I'm uh, a mixed Cree and Scandinavian person. I'm short. <laughs> I have brown hair and uh, my left leg is amputated above the knee, which if if people see me is, is often pretty evident because I have a uh, very decorated prosthetic leg that's covered in flowers that I love to show off. <laughs> Beautiful. And we will include some photos, including the beautiful leg um, on whatever platforms we have that include photos. Um, so one of the uh, things that interests us here on the podcast is how uh, your disability or difference in accessing the world uh, affects your um, access to work opportunities or training opportunities. Um, and it may be a, a bit different for you as a musician, but I thought that might be a place to start. Of the story of how can can you can you just sure. <laughs> how, right off the bat you're gonna have to edit how, this. What was the question? <laughs> how the disability um, affects your access to uh, access to training opportunities, both as a broadcaster and as a singer and musician. Okay, to training opportunities, hmm, or work opportunities. Yeah, you know, for me, where my disability impacts opportunities <laughs> is the minute that there's a flight of stairs. Um, I can get upstairs on my own. Um, some days that's less painful than others, although it's never easy. And, and kind of just even in my daily life outside of my career, I'm always thinking about how much physical activity I have in a day. You know, I look at my day and I think, okay, I need to do this. I'll need to do this. And then I'll be spent. I'll be done. You know, so I have to kind of measure <laughs> what I can do where physically. And it's that, that math that a lot of people with uh, disabilities are needing any kind of accommodation we're used to. And, and so if a, if a venue or a place with a workshop or a course, like if that's um, up three flights of stairs, I can't go. And so there's a very immediate limitation around just accessibility, like access to the building. Um, and then I think there's been ways, you know, that are, are maybe harder to pinpoint. I can't point to like a flight of stairs um, with opportunities that are probably a result or limitation that are a result of um, 
just people's biases or, or lack of understanding. I think, you know, I say that about stairs, but there's also workarounds, you know, there's ways that I can do it if I have some warning <laughs> or, you know, if I plan it as part of my day and sometimes people will assume that I just can't. And so they won't um, offer me the opportunity or, or talk to me about how to be creative with space and access. And, and so the biggest limitations I've experienced have just been around getting into spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we, we talk about that here of the the privilege of someone like me uh, of literally being able to get in the door sometimes of an audition space or a performance space, someone who is not disabled, who can walk up a flight of stairs without it affecting my energy going into the room or my pain or anything else, let alone just being able to do it. Um, and that that is a real uh, you know, a, a basic level privilege that a lot of us don't think about. Um, yeah. And it's, and as a musician, I mean, I, in my genre, I, I used to play or still <laughs> in before times used to go to a lot of folk <laughs> festivals and, you know, those are on hills and in grassy fields. Like that's another terrain that can be tricky for me to, to get around. And because I'm a, you know, solo sing, solo singer songwriter, but I'm carrying a guitar, um, and just trying to, you know, get help sometimes is a challenge. I mean, I mentioned my my prosthetic leg, but the minute I wear pants, I can I can kind of pass for non-disabled, um, which is a privilege that I embody. But it does mean that sometimes it can be in this very frustrating way because of people's preconceived notions about what disability looks like. If I ask for help, I might not get it because I don't look mm-hmm. a certain way. And I'm like, well, I could just take my pants off and you might help me. Um <laughs> but I don't have to prove something to you. Um, <laughs> um, and so it also, it's not just stairs. Sometimes it's hills or grass, or I used to play in a lot of bars. And so those are dark spaces with sticky, you know, floors and, and spills and, and, a, and a kind of crappy stage with cables that haven't been kind of wrapped up properly. And, and, I spent a lot of time, I used to, just feeling kind of scared and stressed because of trying to navigate those spaces. Like, I won't feel if my prosthetic foot is caught on something until I've right. fallen and figure out why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another way that just spaces are hard to physically move around. Mm-hmm. So what um, what have venues or uh producers done? Um, are, are there moments that you can think of where either through asking the right questions in advance, or I, I don't know what, that they really created, wow, that that was easy. I wish it was always like this. I just have so many thoughts about the opposite. You know, okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> give us those. It's interesting thinking about barriers and thinking about how producers and presenters helped for a really long time, despite what I would need. I didn't ask for help or let people know because I was afraid, sometimes wrongfully, but, but also <laughs> appropriately afraid that people would say, oh, do you know what? We're not, you, you won't be able to play the show. You just shouldn't come or, you know, it's not going to be a fit or whatever wording they would use. And I was so worried about losing a gig that I would not mention my disability and just get there and find a way for it to work. And it was so painful and I don't know that it was worth it. Bless my younger self for, for, for pushing through that. Um, But uh, I think there has been just so many times that people kind of shrug or say, 
they don't know what to do or, you know, it's just the venue and it's an old building and oh, well. And, um, but I think, or, or it's not even knowing actually earlier, not earlier this year, last year, I did a speaking gig at um, the NAC mm-hmm. and they had asked me to, to give a talk about being disabled. And I actually like assumed that that meant the venue was accessible. <laughs> <laughs> my bad. You know, I might have too. <laughs> <laughs> and I was also like, and it's the NAC. Like this is a, you yeah. know, it uh, or not, you know, it wasn't at the NAC. It's the, um, how was the gallery in Ottawa? That's where it was. The art oh, gallery. Okay. I but was same say, thing, whatever. Okay. Some big institution, yeah. big, beautiful mm-hmm. building, not an old stinky bar. And, <laughs> and I got there and, and the green room, they were like, okay, so when it comes time, you're going to go down this massive flight of stairs um, and you'll step here and you'll be introduced. And I was like, I'm sorry, like, no. And I'm certainly not going to do that physical exertion and then expect to perform. Like you're going to have to give me half an hour to recover. And when I said, oh, but isn't there an elevator? No one knew. <laughs> I was like, what do you, you don't know. Wow. Yeah. They, wow. That's they, disappointing. It's so disappointing because they were like, oh, well, we just booked this space. You know, it's a rental, da, da, da. Um, and I just think it's amazing. It amazed me that no one on their team, and this was a large team because the presenter was also like a large institution. No one had thought to just like have a checklist of like, what does this venue have? And just for anyone, anyone who might need an elevator. Yeah. Um, in, in situations like that that I've encountered, it's always, yeah, we have an elevator. And it turns out it's a damn freight elevator. And I'm just like, what the hell? Like, this is not safe. And they put you in it by yourself. And they're like, someone will open the door on the other end. It never feels yeah, good. Exactly, exactly there's so many things that go wrong I think but I I wish that venues and presenters would have a built-in checklist you know kind of information (laughs) that they can share with performers and then an openness to be creative about it so like if a venue I'm often doing like a google word search on a place like stairs site you know and and just seeing if their website mentions anything um and it's really easy for people to to put that information on their website about their venue or their performance series. And, and it's easy to have a, a, you know, something that when there's emails about bookings to say, this is what the space is, this is what it has, this is what it doesn't like, just make some effort <laughs> to be informed of what barriers might be there. And they're probably always going to miss something. And, you know, mm-hmm. something that makes it accessible for someone else introduces a barrier for someone, you know, I know it's complex and all of that. And, but it just seems like a lot of people, aren't really trying at all <laughs> to, yeah. to to just communicate what's there. And I think people are reluctant sometimes to just name what the barriers are. Like they feel guilty that it's inaccessible, but like I'm used to it. Like so many places are inaccessible. Just say it. You don't like, you know, I know that you can't find a better venue, whatever. But <laughs> I think there's this almost like sometimes people like don't want to admit that they're, that they haven't. Well, to your point right. of venues feeling guilty, I, I, as, someone with cerebral palsy I kind of look at it and go maybe you should feel a little guilty if that's what if that's what spurs them to doing the things that need to be done in in order to allow us to have access to their spaces maybe that's what it takes is it is a heavy spoonful of guilt every now and then to to remind them that they need to make some change that's true I know I'm motivated by guilt (laughs) so I can definitely make things happen and you're right it should be like yeah feel bad get your act together (laughs) Um, so uh, yeah, I feel like mostly when it comes to access venues, presenters have failed. I think people could do a lot of simple things to just make some information available or be ready to answer questions. 
Yeah. I, so a related question, uh, because you're from a adjacent industry, do you, uh, when people are say booking you, is there ever a form included? Like, do you have access needs that we should know about? Um, never with your kind of standard music venues or performance series. Um, if I'm playing like a queer arts festival, <laughs> sure, <laughs> they're really good at that. They make sure they have my pronouns and my my dietary restrictions and everything. And just like spaces that are a bit more used to maybe having those conversations. I wish that weren't true. Um, but no, I've I've never been presented with that, even from like major festivals that you would think should have that kind of infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess a, a way to look at it is there is lots of great room for improvement. <laughs> look at the potential. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, you know, having, you know, been focusing on, on theater and, and, and aware of some of the limitations there, it, it actually is, it's eye-opening to me to hear that it's a little more universal than I had imagined. Um, I think so. And I imagine, I mean, I'm now in recent years, you know, playing fewer gross bars. I mean, no shame to them. some great bars, some lovely bars <laughs> um, and more like soft cedar theaters. But yeah, theaters, theaters are sometimes the harder spaces to get into. I mean, all those angles and ramps and yeah. balconies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and and one thing we're really aware of in theater is that uh, there's been a real push to make audience spaces accessible, but less of a push to make the backstage spaces of, of it, uh, accessible. Yeah. And Same in music. And it breaks my heart because I feel like it's this, it's, uh, yeah, it breaks my heart because it's like, oh, we have disabled people in the audience, but for some reason they don't think that there's artists yeah. <laughs> um, with disabilities and it's, uh, it's so ignorant. So you talked, uh, you made reference earlier to, you know, not having been as open about your disability in the past. And um, I would, and I, I know that this is a situation for a lot of people, especially with acquired disabilities, uh, working in theater, and I imagine also in music, especially, um, I'm thinking of people who acquire it over the course of their career, and think, oh, I got to hide this now, or people will stop hiring me. Um, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your evolution from, you know, sort of say concealing it to being open about it. Yeah. Disclosure is huge. <laughs> you know, it's a personal journey. I think um, for me and my disability was acquired. So my left leg was amputated above the knee when I was 13. Um, as the cure for the bone cancer that I had. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I sometimes talk about that experience as this like exaggerated adolescence, <laughs> you know, at a time when already your body is becoming familiar and unfamiliar in new ways. I now was like, oh, and I'll just also learn to walk again and feel completely different in myself. That's fine. It's sort of part of being an adolescent, but it was like this really heightened version of it. Um, and so, but by the time I was in my early twenties and starting to want to perform and make music, I myself was not that comfortable with, um, with my difference. And so, you know, uh, even it's not entirely perceived or made up that I would face discrimination, but I also was having a lot of my own like insecurities and, um, 
figuring out who I am in my body and how I feel about my body. And so I kept, I kept it private. I think I was just, I was afraid that people would, you know, hold it against me or, or think that it meant I couldn't be a singer. <laughs> I did an interview, gosh, on my very first ever media things. It was my first album that came out in 2005. I was on Sounds Like Canada and I was really bummed because Sheila Rogers was like on holiday and I oh. so wanted to meet her. <laughs> then I've met her since <laughs> and I love her and it's fine. Um, but, you know, it was like my new, you know, big new interview. And and in that interview, I did mention that I'm an amputee. Um, and then someone wrote to my label, like astonished that I could play guitar with no limbs. And I was like, no, I still have three. Like, but also what? Like, it was just, it was just really weird. But it was like, oh, people are going to get it wrong. And I became, so I became very cautious to say anything. So I was like, like, they always get it wrong. The media itself will get it wrong. And then the listener gets it wrong. It's this game of telephone. And it scared me. It scared me that this story could go and turn into something else. And I'd have no control and I couldn't explain it. And, and so that's how I felt in my 20s. <laughs> Um, and then just over time, you know, aging and life experience and um, all kinds of things around me. I mean, social media actually, as, as sort of social media grew and I started to see representation of, you know, other amputees looking amazing and rocking cool prosthetic limbs and using it as an accessory and making it part of fashion that I was like, oh, okay, like that looks really empowered and that looks really beautiful. And I I didn't know that I could look or feel that way. That hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> As we know, representation matters. Um, and I just started to kind of slowly in, in my, you know, personal not career life, play with that kind of thing. What was it like for me to be visible? What was it like for me to be out about my disability um, when I meet new people or start a new job? And I just started having, just trying different approaches <laughs> and seeing what I liked. And, um, and then eventually six years ago, got the, got the floral leg and decided to, you know, not just be out, but like kind of wear a neon sign, which I realized like, there's so many disabilities that like people don't get to make that choice and they can't hide it. Um, you know, or change it or, or decide how to reveal it. And so getting to play with that is, has been a privilege that I, I have, I've been able to kind of AB test <laughs> the way that I want to like be seen in some ways. Um, but getting the flower leg six years ago was a really big change in how I presented and shared my limb difference. Um, and I, in, in getting that, uh, cosmesis made like getting the flower like made was making a decision to just kind of always make it visible and always make it known and not be afraid of the story getting wrong and not being afraid of losing opportunities or if I did oh well or screw them and 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 just kind of just just shifting gears but I think that really just came with with time and experience and you know nearing 40 <laughs> it just took me that long um, I've lost track of the question. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. <laughs> I wonder, well, I'm going to take the opportunity then to throw another question at you, if I may. This is going to be a long-winded question, so forgive me, but I was listening to, last night I was listening to an interview with Sir Ian McKellen, and he talked about coming out in, in, in the 80s, right around the time of when 
they had repealed the the anti-promotion of homosexuality laws in the UK and the idea of um, how being an actor, he kind of saw it as his duty to, to come out and, 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 or not immediately saw it, but sort of developed the sense of duty to come out and um, sort of force the media into situations of, of, of talking about it. And, and he would talked about inciting them to ask him the questions and they would, they would often not print the stories because they were afraid of getting it wrong or just afraid of losing readership because they printed that kind of material. So I wonder how, um, with your music and your songwriting, I wonder how that is impacted by the, the um, not just having the disability, but the idea of having it presenting publicly with it and just sort of wearing it and going, this is me, this is who I am. How the how your songwriting and musicianship is impacted by all of all of those trappings as well. Yeah, I mean, in my writing, in my songwriting, <clears throat> I wasn't hiding it, which, other than the fact that in lyrics and in poetry, all kinds of things are. Sure. Um, you know, so there 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 was in my music stories about um, uh, my disability, about having cancer, about losing my leg, because the way that I write, I mean, I'm very autobiographical I just talk about myself <laughs> and my experiences and so it was it was in there but but in some ways that was my way of kind of having a valve release of like getting to like share this but in the safe like oh it's in it's in music in, and I just had to coded and coached yeah it rhymes yeah. it choruses out fine you know it could mean it could mean anything um and so it was like yeah yeah a way to sort of couch this this part of myself um, but I think part of what has been empowering in the last six years um, has been some a similar experience of like stepping into almost a responsibility about it or a sense of duty of like wanting to contribute to all the different stories and representations of disability so that, you know, when I got the flower, like there was people in my music community who didn't know. Um, I only had one leg. It was like this reveal. <laughs> and um, and I realized how important that was. Like people need to know that this short brown haired kind of person who does these kinds of things could be disabled. <laughs> um, and that there's all these different ways that that looks and sounds. Um, I played a gig in Germany a couple of years ago and someone came up to me after and said that they had come to the show just because they wanted to hear what like, a half breed sounded like basically. And I was like, oh, okay. Like they just like, they, as far as being a mixed indigenous person. And I was like, that's, that's interesting. Like, what did you expect? Did I, did I meet that expectation? Like, yeah. I, do you want feathers in my hair? Like, what are you looking for? Um, so similarly with disability, like there is no, you know, even more so disability, there's no one thing. And so I, I feel like, yeah, kind of pushing that and forcing people to like, notice and accept or like ask those questions and um and challenge or you know not not challenge the ideas that they <laughs> didn't know they had about disability um that I think I've stepped into that more and and wanting that to be present I was a couple years ago I released maternity photos that I did at um show my prosthetic leg and also somewhere I take the prosthesis off and so you see my stump and it's the first time I'd ever done photos without my prosthetic on and I've 
you know, I've had all kinds of photo shoots and, um, and so it was like pushing my like comfort level a little bit for the first time, but the photos went viral. And one of the responses I got from people was like, wow, thank you for making disability look beautiful or showing it as beautiful. And I was like, well, of course, like bodies are cool. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and, and also that was like a professional photo shooter who was like a photographer. So the photos are beautiful, but like, um, I, I, I loved that because I was like, oh, have you not seen that before? Like, have you not thought that a, a person, a body with a disability is beautiful before? And like, you probably have, and maybe didn't know it <laughs> or yeah. maybe you haven't because we have such a lack of representation. And so I, I've been glad to now take that opportunity more often to include my disability in the foreground so that that is there so that it maybe pushes some buttons or it maybe challenges some ideas. And these are really long winded answers. Please edit anything, whether I've asked you to or not. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love it. We, we embrace the long winded here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To the idea of, 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 you know, of challenging and, and, and getting, getting responses from people who are, and you, and you think to yourself, Oh, have you, have you not encountered that for the, for those who haven't heard the show, and uh, haven't seen me, I'll describe myself quickly. I have cerebral palsy and I use a wheel, an electric chair to get around in my daily life. And I'm, I'm glad that folks are doing that, that you're doing stuff like that. And that there are other people that are trying to do those kinds of things because that's the only way change happens is sometimes is to, is to tackle it head on. Yeah, but you're right. It's, it's like, there's a, like representation makes a huge difference, an absolute huge difference. And, and so people haven't seen it maybe, but yeah. I, I, but it blows my mind. But because to me, that's so no much. excuse. That's no Not excuse. It's no excuse. Yeah. And it also, it doesn't really add up because there are so many, what is it? 25, 20% of population of, you know, for people with disabilities. Um, but there's a weird thing in, 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 I mean, and like that you experienced it in theater and in movies about, you know, with cripping up and, and sort of the remarkable challenge of portraying someone with a disability yeah. that is so disgusting. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, what, what's the stat of like Oscar nominees for, for roles that are, you know, people with disabilities played by non-disabled actors. It, it really illustrates a huge problem. Um, in our perception and in the way that we portray people with disabilities and and so yeah i like that that's somehow harder to act or that's a like more impressive feat is to 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 portray that over any other thing that a an actor is doing all the other things they're pretending to do <laughs> um so whether it's like they're still being a different person whether that yeah. character has a disability or not <laughs> as though like 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 Eddie Redmayne playing Stephen Hawking in the theory of everything and, and him having to figure out the, the physical uh, and gestural musculature of that, of Stephen's body is, is somehow harder than the rock getting in shape or somebody getting in shape for an action movie. It's, it's the same, it's the same thing. And, and I think yep. you bring up a really good point, Krista, of reframing the, of reframing those kinds of thing, things as being the same sort of, um creative challenge yeah. just the the end result looks different at the end of the day that's it's 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 important to, to go ahead sorry no no i should have let you finish your sentence i, I was just going to say it's important that we 
that we position position those kinds of things like that as a reframing rather than something new and exciting and interesting. It's, it's the same thing, just in different uh, costume, basically. And also to offer opportunities for people with genuine lived experience of uh, whether it's cerebral palsy, whether it's limb differences, uh, any all kinds of disabilities to also have a chance to represent and to be seen on on stage on screen um this was something we wanted to ask you about actually krista was what uh sort of your as a as a consumer assuming you're someone who occasionally might watch tv or movies or theater um uh had you know what your experience of seeing people who uh, say who have limb differences uh, versus someone with a CGI limb difference. Uh, you know, have you? Um, you know, do you remember seeing that say when you were a young person, or um, and how did that affect you, or did, how did not seeing it affect you? Yeah, I mean, the first memory I have of seeing it represented was Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, bilateral amputee. <laughs> Although in that, actually, a friend and I were just talking about that and how it doesn't kind of hold up. Like when he first loses his legs, um, he's quite bitter and angry and like fair, like that, you know, it sucks. And at first and then you get used to it. Right. <laughs> but the, what what sort of resolves that for him is that he like gets a girlfriend and then he's happier. Um, that's what it seems like. Anyway, at the end. And he has the cool titanium legs. And so, um, God, what's the actor's name? I mean, he's not an amputee. Yes. Yes. Um, and you know, there's so few actors with, uh, not that there's few actors with limited difference. There are so few opportunities given to, um, actors with limb difference. I think, you know, it's very slowly changing. Someone just mentioned to me yesterday, I should have written it down some show where a character had limb difference. It wasn't mentioned and it was like not a main character, but it was just like in passing, they weren't automatically a villain. Um, it just was like a store clerk who, you know, had one hand and that was great. And I was like, perfect. I would love to see that all the time because that's actually very normal. But it's like, if you go out shopping, you're going to see all kinds of people working in stores, <laughs> not yeah. just skinny white people. Um, exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> just not realistic. <laughs> um, and so like the, the, but other than that, like, I don't, I don't think I saw it again. I don't think other times I've seen it. There's a character in Orange is the New Black, um, uh, but he, the, the actor is not an amputee. You know, it's funny because people still get excited about CGI, like, wow, that's so realistic and, and, you know, what they can do in effects. And, and it's hard because I, I, I like to see representations of disability in characters in all kinds of ways. Um, and of course, I wish that it, the performer ha also had a lived experience with disability. Um, I'm, I'm, I start the like low <laughs> threshold is like, at least it's something. Um, but then, you know, I know all of these things that we have to work backwards from there because when it comes to access, like if an audition space isn't accessible, if the theater school was never accessible, like for me, you know, if it's, uh, you know, a residency that I want to go to and work with a particular songwriter and, and, you know, but it's not an accessible space and I decide not to go. And like, so there's all these things that would make me better at my craft. Um so that when those opportunities come up, I would be more qualified. And then, then those, those people giving those opportunities, you know, and making sure that they're 
offering them to to the people who are qualified and it's tough like i and i don't know what like what we can overhaul all at once <laughs> or what we chip away at um to make a difference but you know there are those little little changes and i i love seeing it in stories but there's not enough yeah i uh was just reading an article uh interviewing um what's his name kurt yeager who is a hollywood actor who um is a amputee a, a lower um lower leg unilateral amputee and he already had done a little bit of acting before the accident he was a bmx stunt person and uh, but his real career has come post injury and he um but it was the whole article it, it was about disability in hollywood um and it included the statistic that uh 22% of um, disability portrayals in, mov in movies or in maybe TV specifically was, uh, are currently authentic, um, you know, done by people with That's higher than I expected. Disability. It was actually a little higher than I expected too, but then it turned out it was TV specifically and film is way, way lower apparently. Um, but, you um, you know, so many stories in there of, you know, a woman who was a, an upper extremity amputee who got a, a, a role as a girlfriend, just a small role, and then they took it back because they, and she said they never said it was because <laughs> she didn't have two arms, but she slowly noticed them noticing it more and more as she got further in the audition process. And then, you know, it was offered and, and taken back. She's like, but people have girlfriends with, like, it doesn't have to be the one armed girlfriend. It can be just the girlfriend, the store clerk, the what have you. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think all of all of us who come and have these conversations here on Disability Stage Writer are looking for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that like young 13 year old Krista could see herself, could imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because what's the you can't you can't believe it if you don't see it or yeah, some something it, like that. Yeah, that's there you yeah. go. There was also gosh, what was his name? Carrie. There was the doctor on ER who used a cane and I don't think they ever explained why. Yeah. I loved that. He had uh, hip dysplasia. I oh, believe, there you go. <laughs> is what it was. That's awesome. <laughs> Trivia. Um, but that was like, you know, a part of who she was and was not the plot. Um, yes. you know, and, uh, and she was a great doctor, <laughs> had yeah. lovers and ate dinner, you know, it was like, <laughs> I, so I remember that I was just like, Oh, look, she uses a cane and she's doing yeah. all this stuff. She's cool. There too. Another actor who wasn't, uh, who didn't have the lived experience, but you know, I actually, I recently started rewatching ER again for whatever reason and seeing how well she does in that role. Is kind of like, huh? And like you said, it didn't it didn't dawn on me, but it's not really a thing past mm -hmm. the first couple episodes because the rest of the cast is kind of adjusting to a character um, with a disability. They they did a they did a couple things here and there when she first joined, and then they just moved on. Yeah, and it, it was nice to see. I remember there being a scene on ER where you see her having a shower, and and they were kind of priming it for her to come out. I think she ends up being clear yeah. Yeah. and I remember my partner at the time my girlfriend being like they're sexualizing her something's happening something's gonna happen <laughs> but in this like excited way but even with that I was like yeah they've got her naked in a shower she looks great like and she's with someone who uses a cane isn't that cool yeah. <laughs> and she's gay great but um 
but yeah, just those little moments like that really stood out for me. It's really memorable. Carrie in the shower, yeah. like <laughs> because this is one little thing. Yeah. See, Angela has joined us. Hi, everybody. How are you? <laughs> I'm enjoying this so much. It is such a treat to get to hear you speak, Krista. Um, I just wanted to pop in and um, just share, as our listeners know, um, not only are we trying to create a, a space where artists with uh, disabilities can come and talk and learn and share. Um, we also um, are hoping to make some actual uh, change in, in Canada's arts community. And so um, one of the things that I have, one of the things that I have voluntarily tasked myself with is to, um, ask questions on behalf of the organizations and the, um, uh, you know, the different uh, arts um, groups across Canada and what sort of questions they might want to ask but not have a place or the confidence to ask. So my question based on that for you today is, I want you to imagine that you are going in for an audition, either as a musician uh, in a theater show or for um, potential music um, producer. And you come in with your fabulous flower um, leg on and uh, you realize everyone in the room is staring at the leg rather than you. I'm curious if you could share with our listeners a better way to handle that situation and what they need to know and what to do and what not to do in, in that particular situation. I'd appreciate if you could share with us. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Think about it. Absolutely. What's a better thing to do than stare? Man. I mean, we need to not stare and we need to notice when we're staring. And I think the work we can do to get better <laughs> at not being kind of shocked or caught off guard by difference is to surround ourselves with it and pursue it and support it. And, you know, I, in, in the media that I consume, you know, I only have so much time to, to listen to something on Spotify or watch something on Netflix. Um, I am these days so intentional, even if it's something I'm like, oh, I just want to watch a rom-com, fluffy, whatever. I'm still going to try and choose something <laughs> that was like made by black producers or has an indigenous cast member or, uh, or someone with a disability. Like the things that align with my communities and align with the, the, the communities I want to support. Someone in, in this, you know, in 2020, in, in this time of like the BLM uprisings, uh, someone was uh, talking about, you know, supporting black owned businesses. And they were like, you know, we, we talk about supporting black owned businesses, but if we're just going to a white owned business, we just call it shopping. <laughs> and why can't we say that's supporting a white owned business? Like, where is your money going? What are you spending time on? And what are you giving attention? And so anyways, all of that can backtrack to just like, inform us so that when we see someone with a difference that we don't do a double take and we don't stare because I get that maybe you haven't been exposed to an amputee before or someone with a cool floral leg you know um or like whatever the difference is we all have our zone of experience and what we've been exposed to but I think we have um 
a responsibility and absolutely no excuse to not expand that exposure. So like look at who you are and start to see and interact with art and people who are not you, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, I think that helps because we know we're not supposed to stare. We were all kids who were told like, Shh, no, don't stare. That's rude. Um, and, and, but we do it. I do it. I, I see, so I'll, I'll catch myself, you know, doing a double take or, and, and have to go, oh, what was, why did you do that? And what was that about? Or what assumptions were I making? And can I catch what these thoughts are? And can I fact check them? And where did this information come from? Why do I think that? Um, you know, so that's all this kind of homework and all this work that comes after what can be a small interaction. And so I think with something like an audition, if that comes up, you know, it sucks. It sucks being the person who is stared at. And I think the people doing the staring just need to, if that happens, they need to figure it out. They need to urgently do some work to, to, to challenge and question why that happened. And then just break it down. There's been so many incredible studies about bias and, um, and the ways that those of us who don't kind of show like in our brain scans, a reaction to a difference is because we know someone, <laughs> we know someone with that difference. And so of course we can't, you know, based on our so like social locations all know every kind of difference, but there's, it's so easy to watch shows and listen to podcasts and, and read books and, and be exposed to that difference so that there isn't a double take. I think we all need to be doing that all the time. Is that a good answer? I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough question. <laughs> I think it's a good it's answer. A really, it's a really great answer, I think. And and it, it brings up, too, like talking about bias and thinking about uh, all of those things, the, the intersectional, like the intersectional uh, sort of both privileges that somebody like me has as a like I'm I'm white I'm tall I'm cisgendered I'm non-disabled and I can walk into you know most spaces in in Canada extremely comfortably the people who I work with every day the kids that for the last three years my job has pretty much been exclusively traveling to uh, remote First Nations communities um, in a position funded by Jordan's principal providing services that kids had not had access to previously because of the systemic problems in our system so <laughs> um, and so uh, you know this podcast in part started from wanting and 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 the work I do in theater you know wanting to make it you know easier for people with all kinds of different disabilities to work in theater comes from me wanting all the the kids who I've worked with over the years to be able to see themselves represented but to also actually be able to work when they grow up in these in these areas that I can work in because otherwise what kind of a hypocrite am I <laughs> um, and and something that I'm keenly aware of right now because all the kids I'm working with are indigenous um, most you know a big part of my work is First Nations I also work in one Inuit community and um, and for kids of all kinds who have disabilities, who don't have disabilities to, to be able to see themselves represented is important. 
Yeah, so I'm just aware, like, that you are, uh, as a, a Cree, a, a Canadian singer-songwriter of both Cree and Scandinavian heritage, who also has a disability, there's probably these times when you run into intersectional uh, difficulties, uh, whether, uh, such as um, in that story you told of Germany, um, although that was, you know, specifically <laughs> regards to your heritage and not your disability. Um, and just whether you could talk about that at all. But where they intersect and yeah. clash and collide. It's funny, I, I notice sometimes, um, you know, I'll be programmed for an event. And there's things where I know it's because I've, you know, ticked some kind of box and there's some um, tokenization with that. And then at the same time, I'm like, sure, I'll take the gig. It's fine. <laughs> um, but, but I'll show up and I'll be like, what, 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 what's the event? What's the thing? Is this because I'm, am I supposed to be native today? Am I supposed to be disabled today? Is this a queer thing? Is this a mom thing? Like I have to kind of like, I'm like, which part were you expecting? Yeah, which today? <laughs> yeah. Which part of my complete being were you expecting to show up and satisfy a stereotype. Like I won't necessarily fill it, but I'd like to know. <laughs> so I can, so that I can go out of my way to avoid filling it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I notice it there because I think sometimes people are like, oh, but you're this thing. So why are you doing that? <laughs> um, or, or yeah, you're this. So we expected, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, I, you know, I find, I mean, in, in disabled art spaces and in queer spaces, it's never an issue. I, I, I love working in those spaces because they have like, not that there's not problems, but like a lot has been figured out. And, um, and just that everyone has some kind of experience <laughs> with, with, with intersectional identities. But it's when I met those more like mainstream events where I run into, yeah, the expectations of what I'm supposed to look like or sound like or talk about. Yeah. I wonder, you, you talked a little bit about, um, with Angela's question, it, it was, what do you say to like the, the producers and those kinds of things of like, where you walk in for an audition and, and, they, and they're caught staring and all those kinds of things. But something you mentioned in that answer is the idea that it's something we all do as, as regardless of what, uh, again, to use the, the, the parlance, what boxes we may tick it's something we all do. So I wonder, what would you say to folks who may tick one or many of those boxes who might be listening with regard to, to staring and, and catching themselves doing it and, and ways that, you know, because I've caught myself as a disabled person doing, doing it too. Like, it's something we all do. But, like, it feels like there's a heavier... Um, for me at least, because I'm in one of those minority groups, it feels like there's a heavier uh, weight to catching myself doing things that all people do. And I wonder what what sorts of things might you offer um, to somebody who is, who is particularly struggling with the notion of not necessarily just being someone who is stared at for, for a, a a physiological difference that they have no control over, but who who is potentially well being stared at doing the same thing and, and combating both both sides of that feeling, you know, and that struggle. Yeah. If that makes sense. I'm not sure if that's a No, it does. And I think it's such a good 
point because of course we all do it. <laughs> like we've all been impacted um by the like homogenous um media that we've been consuming forever and the white supremacist system that we live in and none of us are are free from that and i think what I've been learning and when I encounter that in myself is like just trying to have compassion for that and recognize it as something that's moving through me and that it's not me. I'm not a bad person. I just didn't know something or I didn't see that before. And that helps me. <laughs> like it's what I do for myself when I'm, when I'm struggling with that uh, where it's like, well, I sh maybe I should know better. Or if people say to me, you should know better because you're this, this, and this. And, um, um, but like everyone, I'm doing my best. I mean, I think it's almost like the thing earlier of like people should feel guilty because there's some people we should not let off the hook. But at the same time, yeah, we're all human. <laughs> We've all, you know, been impacted by these messages around us. And as people with disabilities, we've all heard all kinds of anti, you know, disability ableist bullshit our whole lives. And so there's no way for us to be to be free of that. And so I think when I catch it in myself and feel like I should have known better or, um, you know, um, that because of who I am, that I would not do that. I try and just like be compassionate for myself and recognize it as a thing I've been taught and the thing that I can unlearn. I mean, it's, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier, Miles, about reframing too. Like, I think there's, uh, how do I want to say it, but there's something also about even in, in asking people to not stare, like I have, I have a three-year-old and so I'm, I'm at playgrounds a lot. And so I'm sur often surrounded by herds of children <laughs> poking and pointing and asking me questions. Um, and I've kind of learned through the way that I'm answering their questions. I've like, oh, I think a lot of adults are sometimes asking these questions <laughs> to themselves. It's the staring thing, but kids yeah. just come up to me and say it. Um, but with kids, because they're kids. Uh, and they're um, curious. They're curious. And, and that's all it is. Unlike with adults, sorry to cut you off, unlike with adults where it can sometimes be um, prejudice, the upside with children is that they're just curious and they just want to know most of the time anyways. Yeah, most of the time. And so I think some, sometimes what I try to apply is like the way that I talk to kids, which is not to like infantilize everyone else, but like my response to them is usually like, oh yeah, you noticed my leg. Like it's really different. Hey, like it looks different or, you know, and I, I'll give some very simple thing of like, oh, this, I use this to walk and then I decorate it with flowers because I thought they were so pretty. And I kind of try and shift it to like, isn't this cool? I have this really cool thing and because I have uh, my I have a microprocessor knee and it, it's battery operated so it has a little port that I plug in, in at night and during the day there's this flashing green light and so kids love that because I'm like part robot and, so yeah. I look at the, and I'm like look at the flashing green light and and I try and get them excited about it I try and I, I like my answer to them isn't just like oh yeah I had cancer and now I'm better and but it's like isn't this awesome and this is what I know I know this cool thing about being a one-legged person that you don't know <laughs> and so I I think there's even with like the staring thing it's like we also have to like learn not just to not stare or learn to catch ourselves and try and question our biases we also need to like even reframe the question of like like not only is it okay that that person's different but like what's interesting and amazing about that and what yeah. does that bring to this situation um my, my friend's mother is is colorblind and and we were talking recently about like some you know 
inspirational viral video of, of, of people with colorblindness, like putting on glasses and they can finally see color. And I was like, I want to see what your mom sees. Like, how does she see the world? That amazes me. Like what I see is what all these other people see. It's so boring. <laughs> like, what does she, what's her perception? Like she has this incredible yeah. insight into the world that I don't have. Like, I want to know about that. So it's not just like, oh, don't stare at Susan's mom and her really thick glasses. It's like, you know, if you're in a position to have a curious conversation and a compassionate conversation and a respectful conversation, it's also like, what's what's the kind of incredible knowledge that this person has? Like, I sometimes talk about my disability in that way. It's like, I've been to a country that not everyone's been to. And here's my slideshow. Like, don't you want to see the photos of the, you know, of Mount Everest, whatever. But like, it's like, this is a thing that is interesting. It's not just a thing you have to be okay with and accept and la la la. It's actually, there's so, yeah, there's so much strength in it too. Mm -hmm. I do. I do the same thing all the time. When I talk about my chair, I frequently refer to it as the 600 pound robot strapped to my hips. That's (laughs) for, for a lot of the same reasons that you talked about, like reframing your leg as something that's interesting and cool. If you use that kind of language, it sort of gets folks who are nervous and uncomfortable off their heels and they're like, oh, it's just a robot. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there's like, all kinds of questions we can ask about robots. That's awesome. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, representation matters is something that's come up a lot today. And and just thinking back to uh, like 13-year-old Krista what are the things that could have existed or could exist in uh, whether it's media, theater, music, uh, TV, film that um, either helped or, or could help? Um, gosh, you know what kind of mediocrity? And I mean that in, <laughs> in a really good way. Because yeah. <laughs> I feel like if there was representation of, of limb difference, it was going to be like you know, it's like RoboCop. It's like these really high tech, like Hollywood um, depictions or it's Cyberpunk sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, or it's um, it's athletes. It's 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 Paralympians and like, you know, who are dedicating their entire lives <laughs> to like daily practice of being a hardcore athlete. And that's not like, I don't want that. I don't want to have to spend every day, all day to be good at something as a disabled person, <laughs> like to, to make my disability okay, to feel good about it. Um, I don't want to do the 10,000 hour rule just to eat a cat of soup. Like- <laughs> exactly. And so I've, what I wish I had seen are these, what we were talking about, these very like small daily um, representations where it's not a big deal. And I think that's in part why my maternity photo struck such a chord outside of the disability community, because it was like, everyone actually wants to see difference. Everyone wants to see kind of extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. Um, and so I think what would have helped me is, is just all those small little daily boring ways, like seeing someone parent who has a lived difference, seeing, you know, yeah, someone in the grocery store having those like B roles be cast by the 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 girlfriend who happens to have one arm, like because because that's normal. But but when when you're not you're not shown that all of those messages of like, oh no, Christy, you won't have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend because it wasn't anywhere around me. Um, and so I think it 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 what would have made a difference is is just really boring. <laughs> 
inclusion. No superheroes. Um, no, like, whatever, athletes. Um, just, like, really ordinary things. I really love that. And, you know, we interviewed uh, Isaac Vint, who's a 10-year-old actor, and his mom, Trish, and, and Isaac is a wheelchair user. And he, um, one of the things that he said either on his guest form or, or in person was, you know, kids in wheelchairs can be jerks too. We're not, we're not always inspirational. <laughs> yeah. We're not always nice. Yeah. yeah. There was kind of the last maybe summer Olympics. There was a, a video, a, tra- a trailer for the Paralympics and it was showing all these incredible athletes, you know, running, lifting weights, whatever, doing all these hardcore athletic things and then it was like someone brushing their teeth with one hand and I was like wait sorry why is the teeth brushing in there? <laughs> like why is this part of the montage like that's not an incredible feat I don't care like I'm glad they brush their teeth but like I don't need to see that as far as this inspirational video about the remarkable feats that <laughs> these athletes. um yeah which just that that kind of makes me think of the people in wheelchairs can be jerks too it's like yeah exactly <laughs> Well, and I can imagine both of you, Miles and Krista, have had experiences where you're doing something fairly banal and been called inspirational for it. Yep. Yeah. Yes. I wrote, there's a scene in my in my book, How to Lose Everything, where I describe waiting for a bus. So I had some headphones in, listening to some music. And then a guy came up to me and was like motioning for me to take my headphones off, which of course I'm like, what is it? What's wrong? What do you need? And he was like, I just want to say... I think it's incredible what you're doing. And I was like, waiting for the bus. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like, I am just standing here. Dude, this is not, like, it's not inspirational. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> do you think it's hard for me to leave the house because of how I look? Like, fuck you. Like, I, I got, I, I felt so angry. It was such a stupid thing to say. Um, and yeah, it happens all the time. I once had a woman wait. I was crossing the street downtown and I had a woman wait at the other side of the intersection just to ask me if she could pray for me to get better. Oh. Like, no, you can't. You can't. No. I, no. First of all, I'm a heathen. I do not believe. Second of all, if it was going to work, it would have worked 30 some years ago. So like. And also, I mean, the, the thing is, that's the default in that is that something is inherently wrong. wrong. Inherently wrong or can be fixed and not, not necessarily can be fixed. Because Should be. Exactly. I would love to, trust me, I'd love to get a brain implant to be able to do all the things that I can't physically do. And when they become real, I'm going to be on the list to to get one for sure. But it's the inherent notion that you said, Krista, that it should be fixed Yeah. versus can it be if it's an option? Like they're two totally different. Again, it's framing. It's It's all framing. framing. What I find for me, what makes my heart sink when I have those interactions, same if people had someone this is in the book too. come up to me and asked me if I was born this way or not. And I was like, you know, I don't, I was like, fine. I was acquired. I had cancer, blah, blah, blah. I give my blurb. And he was like, oh, okay. So the Lord intended you to be whole. And Oof. I was like, I'm sorry, Oof. still a whole Oof. person. <laughs> and, but the thing for me is like, I can't actually, I can't separate at this point in my life, my disability from who I am. So if I were to suddenly not be disabled, I would lose me. <laughs> I would lose who I am. I would lose who I am as a partner, as a friend, as, yeah. as a mother. I would not exist. This would not me, be the same person. So why, 
why on earth would I want that erased? Like, why would I wish to not be myself? I wish to not be in pain as much. I wish that there weren't all that barriers around me. I wish that I wasn't treated in certain ways. I wish that I wish I could run. I miss running. Sure. But I would not be who I am. And I'm not going to wish for that. Like, I'm not going to wish for me to disappear like that. And I think that's when people tell me like that, they would pray for my disability to be healed. I think you're trying to for the erasure. Yeah. Yeah. Like that would be the death of me. Well, and as much as I, and I, on some level, I genuinely do mean that if there was, if there was an implant that I could get tomorrow, that would, that would allow me to do the things that I haven't been able to do easily for most of my life all of my life, really, I absolutely would do that. However, on the contingency that it had the option to be turned off because, because like, I wouldn't be me. If, if I woke up tomorrow and I was suddenly able to run a quarter mile, I'd be like, what the, f- what? No, I don't want to do that. I'm far too lazy. I've got 32, <laughs> 32 years of disability and detriment laziness to get over. That's not going to change. Like, Right. I had people say, you know, you could still ski. I'm like, I don't want to ski. Why would I ski? Yep. <laughs> I'm a musician. It's not play guitar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that, that it could be turned off. I, I think I would choose that as well. Because really then what it's like asking for is like just like wanting some things to be easier. <laughs> not exactly. wanting to be a different person. Which just is like part of access anyways. Yeah. Really. Yeah, exactly. And it also makes me think of your story of your friend's mom who's colorblind and wanting to see the world how she sees it. Like, it would be interesting to experience the world that way, but it it may not be my world. Right. And so that could go both ways. It's like, yeah, Yeah. if you could get a chip and do all those things and then you'd be like, oh, that's what that's like. And so it's like this assumption that as disabled people, we want to be non-disabled, but there's also there's going to be things on both sides i want to try it on sure but i don't know if i want to buy it (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's that again that sort of sense of uh whether you see it as the neutral being you know non-disabled or being white or that and neutral quickly sort of becomes better in the eyes of society but does it have to be can we actually can we actually instead ex Band our, what our neutral is of what yeah. neutral is instead of it needing to be um continue to be white continue to be yep. non-disabled and i think there's like i sometimes when people have said like kind of a just an ableist like saying or something and i'm i'm trying to show <laughs> how it might be harmful i often um will use like a racial example. Like I'm like, replace that word with something racial and not because that's an equivalent experience, but because even if, even if we have like our embedded racisms and our unconscious biases, we know at least in kind of an outward way, it's not okay to say, say, well, I'd rather be white. Like it's not, we know it's not okay to say that, but we will say, well, I don't want to be disabled. And, and so like there, and actually my partner of three years now, but on our second date told me that the nickname that she and her best friend have for each other's is limb because they would miss each other as much as they would miss a limb if one of them was gone. And I was like, no, don't, don't say that. (laughs) And I was like, what if you called each other white? Cause you would miss the other person as much as you would miss being white like that's an awful gross thing to say and totally dehumanizing and then she was like oh my god you're right i can't believe we've been calling each other limb this whole time that's so embarrassing um and they changed their nicknames but but there's this like very 
common, easy assumption that uh, that non-disabled is the preference, that non-disabled is of more value, that non-disabled is, yeah. is the default better thing. And there's sort of some other differences that we've, we've started to figure out like, oh, that's not the preference, that's not the default in really small ways. But for some reason, I feel like disability is is <laughs> one that people are really slow to uh, to catch up on. Hmm. I think I not to belabor that, but I, I just I just as we as we wrap up here, I, I just wonder if if some of that slowness is because it's not as visible as an accent or or skin color or those kinds of things, and and like so i guess then what what we would do there is just make it more visible like we've talked about this whole episode reframe the concept of disability to be this thing that it's okay to wear on a t-shirt in, in a metaphorical sense like go out of the house as a disabled person with your disability on and and just like present it to the world and don't be you know obviously there's some fear that's going to come with it if you're not used to doing that if it's if it's new or what have you, but but that fear will pass and hopefully comes just acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I would love for that. And for all the ways of, of you know, of all the things that, yeah, yeah, if you're not thin and white and non-disabled, <laughs> the same goes for like my fat friends who, I mean, it's a real fear because people are mistreated and people are yeah. harmed and people experience violence for all, you know, my trans friends who daily acts of violence and and so i get why <laughs> trying to hide yeah. things you know but i i i think i'm i'm hopeful about about change it's been such a pleasure speaking with you is there any last things that you would like to add um krista things you thought we might talk about or uh no i think we covered a lot i don't know if <laughs> I can't remember what the questions in the form were, but this has been really interesting. <laughs> um, and we also wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit or, uh, about your book or if you wanted to plug your book or any, your EP or anything else that you might want to plug. Sure. Yeah. So this year I've put out two big creative projects. One was an EP called Safe Harbor. Uh, it came out in March on Coke's Records. It's my first entirely piano-based project. Um, and it's, it's kind of about safety in the ways that I have found and have felt safe, which it came out March 20th. <laughs> so like right at a time where safety was being, um, thought of and experienced in a whole new way for all of us. Um, and my book, it's a memoir, it's called how to lose everything. It came out in September in Canada on, uh, Douglas and McIntyre. It's coming out in March in the States. And uh, it is a memoir about loss and each chapter focuses on a different loss that I've experienced. So that is um, having cancer as a kid, my leg being amputated. Um, I have two children that died, the death of my first son, the death of my second son, a divorce, which was hard, but not as hard as those other things. <laughs> um, a second kind of cancer that threatened my career and I lost my voice for a while. And so it kind of weaves through all these different perspectives and experiences of loss and it's kind of field notes uh, from grief in a way. Um, and so that's out now. Awesome. Thank you, Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Disability Stage Right. And uh, we look forward to encountering you in the future, both through your songs and hopefully someday when 
people can go out in person again in person (laughs) in person i look forward to seeing you guys out there thank you so much thank you so much krista thank you that was so fun that was so thought-provoking and interesting i don't mean me i mean you guys (laughs) i mean as a conversation i really enjoyed that (laughs) it was a great conversation yeah it was was really great thank you